0: Hey there good people in crypto land i'm matt lysing and this is my podcast decent people welcome back to the conversation today we've got another show from the archives Uh, it's one of my favorite conversations i've had uh, on this podcast it's with aaron plant who is the senior director of investigations and special projects at chainalysis chainalysis is a blockchain forensics firm they do really amazing stuff uh, to Help ferret out crime and um, you know other bad deeds uh, using blockchain uh, ledger technology. Uh, they work for governments and corporations and uh, are just uh, really kind of at the cutting edge of uh, kind of sleuthing on the blockchain. Erin uh, has a really fascinating backstory. Uh, she worked in uh, in Hong Kong and in Africa. Um, for corporations uh, ferreting out um, kind of corporate uh, espionage and uh, uh, right up there on with like the spy world and I just really found her um, really refreshing and fascinating Um, so let's get to the episode and if you would be so kind to uh, give us a rating or leave us a comment uh, wherever you're listening to this it helps uh, get the show out there to more people and we would really appreciate it so with all that let's get to the show How are you doing, Aaron?
1: Hi, Matt. I'm doing well. It's nice to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for
2: being here. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation with you. Um, First of all, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, usually I like to do a little bit of research on people who I might not know too much about. Um, So I went to the web and I am trying to find info on Aaron Plant. And man, you have been really good at basically having no... Presence on the web uh, for a very long time, and um, I was curious. Just as a, as somebody in cybersecurity and and you know forensics, is that's that's something that is not a uh, that's not a coincidence, right?
1: It is very intentional. <laughs> I I spent twelve years of my career based in China, uh, the Middle East, and Africa working on cybersecurity threats and. Some parts of that work you didn't want to have your name known or your or any sort of presence on, on the web, particularly yeah. in China.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, is there any hope for, for the rest of us, or is just humanity done with that? Or <laughs> you know, what do you um do you give do you give advice to anybody who wants to kind of you know have a lighter web presence than than not?
1: I I do think having a web presence makes you potentially more of a target, but in this day and age, it's very difficult to not have any kind of web presence. I I think about my my kids and trying to minimize their time on the web and what they're putting out there now, even as young children, um, and it's it's so difficult to do that. So yeah. my my advice to my to my mom and some of the people who are less familiar with technology is just don't click on anything in an email ever
0: (laughs) (laughs) great great advice you
1: can protect yourself from a lot of things if you just don't click on any links
2: yeah for sure (laughs) yeah i I just discovered a new email my 13 year old son has and you know had no idea and just like okay well um (laughs) it it, yeah this the horse is out out of the barn on that one for sure um i was wondering uh if we could just kind of go back and and um learn a little bit about you um where did you
0: grow up
1: yeah sure i i grew up in new hampshire in a small town and i went to college at the university of colorado and studied computer science. So it was there that I started to get into technology and computers. This was back in, I started college in 2000. So it was very early days in technology. Uh, Programming was a very different world back then. Cybersecurity was a very different world back then. I worked for a a a telecom company called Level 3 Communications as an intern when I was in college. And they at the time were were somewhat um, famous in the technology space for having the first upgradable fiber optic network, which is kind of funny to think back on that now, but they had Mm -hmm. undersea cables and they had subterranean um, pipes and we would sit in the network operations center and watch... These little robots drag new fibers through these these tunnels, and that's how they upgraded the network.
2: Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Is that the- Very
1: different now in the world of 5G, but (laughs) that's how we did it back then.
2: Is that the connection between um, like North America and Europe?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So Level 3 owned the first um, connection between North America and Europe, and it was the first fiber optic network. And yeah. we would we would watch thought, watch the fibers get dragged across yeah. between the continents. How cool! It was pretty amazing at the time.
2: What, what were you like as a kid? Did you always like computers or science or what? Um, what was your childhood like?
1: I've always been um, I've always been a math science person, so I've always been really more interested in in maths and sciences. I'm not great at writing papers, and I've never been very artistic. Um, but I didn't spend a lot of time on computers. You know, as a kid, computers weren't really around. <laughs> so, and we we got our first computer when I was in when I was in high school, and you know, it was still on my, on DOS, and you had a DOS prompt, and you could play Tetris. But um, I was very very interested in um, yeah in math and science generally, and then getting into college, computers was the, you know, it was a newer option in the science, science space. And it just, yeah, it drew me. And I've been very interested ever since.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and then once you got into computer science, did, did you did security kind of leap out at you as something that was interesting or did how did you did you have a longer route to that or how did that come about?
1: No, network security was immediately something that was really interesting to me. So I've I've always been very interested in um kind of policy and um, international relations. And I wanted to major in in that. Um, but I was encouraged by other people in my life to stick with computer science and the network security, cyber security space brought the two together, brought the, the ability to look internationally and um, policy and international relationships, but also the technology component of computer science.
2: And is there a um, kind of good guy, bad guy element to it that appeals to you as
0: well?
1: There is. Yeah, there's there's very much a good guy, bad guy element. I think it's um, protecting new innovations is a huge passion area for me. So back in 2000, it was just the Internet (laughs) and the ability to message and send money and do anything digitally was new and it was the .dot com boom at that time, so all all of the new innovations that came along with with the .dot com boom and cyber as a whole was uh, is definitely an area of passion for me. And then over over the years in this space, you know, working with emerging ephemeral messaging platforms and um, money transfer programs, you know, WeChat Pay and M-Pesa in Kenya and all of those those things. And then leading up to to cryptocurrency,
2: yeah. Um, so, am I correct in your resume that you went to China first, uh, sort of over, <clears throat> as your first overseas sort of work experience?
1: I did. Yeah, I moved to China in two
0: thousand eleven. Okay. And, and what were yeah. you doing there?
1: So, I, I moved there working with cyber with a cybersecurity company, and uh, we were investigating the digital corruption payments that were happening. So we were working with the U.S. government as well as other governments investigating international businesses that were operating in China and the way that they were potentially paying paying bribes to the government officials in China. And that those payments of bribes used to be handing over a duffel bag of cash. And it has morphed <laughs> um, in that time to digital payments. So looking at payment fingerprints and trails and, and following the money to to be able to identify that is is really important yeah. and increasingly difficult.
2: Yeah. So let's get into that. Like, what would you actually do to try to uncover, you know, if some if some executive at a, at a Western firm or whatever is, is taking bribes or, or is bribing uh, Chinese officials? Like, how do you, how do you get on that trail and how do you, um, you know, go about that investigation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the U S there's a law called the foreign corruption practices act. And in the UK it's called the anti-bribery act. And it's essentially saying that as a Western business, uh, business I in the U S or in the UK, you cannot pay bribes to foreign government officials. And in the US, it's the Department of Justice or the SEC that launches an investigation that looks into these allegations. They're they're very difficult to to investigate in places like China because the payments are increasingly happening in these um, behind the Chinese firewall electronic systems. And they're not sitting out there in a, in a place that anyone can get into and investigate. So we would do on-the-ground investigations within their electronic network. So um, in order for evidence to not be destroyed in the the course of our investigation, we would usually be operating overnight under um, the cover that we were doing IT upgrades or we were doing something on their network like Changing out internet cables, <laughs> um, but really we would we would spend the nights uh, copying hard drives, forensically imaging hard drives, forensically imaging any any device that was that was there, and then we would sift through the evidence. We would map out the network um, connections that were outside of that business as well. Ultimately, looking for for payments as. This was I started there in 2011. Cell phones became, you know, smartphones became increasingly important over the time. So then it was looking at emerging payment apps. You know, WeChat Pay is a big is a big way that that payments are made now, as well as some of the the Chinese digital payment systems. And um, in the early days, it was really sort of the the, the wild west in a way of of tackling. Cyber-related corruption and cyber-related communication. Um, it as the as my time there increased, it became more and more complicated. <laughs> the, the Chinese government was more and more aware of what we were doing, why we were there. Yeah. Um, businesses became more and more aware of what we would do, uh, what we were doing and why we were there. We would get into businesses and find network cables cut. We would get into um, businesses and find um, servers broken. You know, wow. inadvertently they've been <laughs> accidentally smashed by something during the day.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: sure. Um, just happened uh, just yeah. a couple hours ago.
1: Yeah, um, just a couple hours ago. You know, someone knocked it over.
2: <laughs> so, so, how, how many uh, in in this in these investigations? How how often did you have the um, the blessing of the company itself? Like, were, were you working for the company? Like, did they know and they were trying to help you? Figure out if some of their employees were, um, you know, giving bribes, or was this like, like you're working for the government and you're kind of like you got to keep your cover and you're going in and, and just sort of like you know as a third party um, to this this company that you're investigating.
1: It was it was a mix um, when it was a government investigation um, and we were working with with some kind of government protection. The, the companies didn't always know. Um, but there were legal, legal, um, legal people involved. Um, it was often also the case where it was a you know relatively prominent business in the U.S. or the U.K. and they were trying to root out the corruption as part of a, a government inquiry into into what was happening. So it's no surprise that a lot of um, particularly manufacturing businesses build a lot of what's built in china um, or at least you know did back then before things moved into to other places and the the need to root out the corruption was was important for them so it was a mix
2: and and how widespread was this kind of bribery in china at the time or or and is it has it changed as you're aware uh, to today
1: it, it's at the time, it was very widespread. So bribery was was very widespread. Uh, it's hard to say if it's changed too much. Um, it's still just a course of doing business. And there is a level of, it's, it's some level of, of payment, making grease payments is allowed under these laws, but they do need to be documented. It can't be hidden. Um, there are some very prominent Um, Foreign Corrupt Practice Act investigations that took place in China that were pretty significant for the government to to undertake. Um, One of those is a big gambling company, um, Las Vegas Sands. They operate a lot of the gambling that occurs in Macau, which is part of China. They do, um, at the time, we were told they do seven times as much business as Las Vegas, wow. and it's one casino that operates there. So if you can think <laughs> of the scale of money that flows through <laughs> that one oh, casino yeah. in Macau, it's pretty astounding. There was a, a multi-year FCPA investigation that occurred there with um, with the U.S. government leading that.
2: That's amazing. Uh, all of Vegas seven times as big, but one casino.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: So when you go in and like now you're inside the internal systems of these you know companies, wouldn't you leave like tracks or how did you like make sure that, you know, they didn't figure out the next morning, like, oh, my God, they just imaged everything on our system.
1: Yeah, so that's that's partly what made it more and more difficult for us to do this work. So we would use specialized equipment um, to not leave tracks on their network and one of those tools is called a write blocker. There are other specialized cables and things that are used, but a write blocker is exactly what it's described as. Um, It prevents the writing of any kind of activity done on a network to the network itself. So you connect to the network or the device via a write blocker, and if you're a network administrator logging in in the morning, you aren't able to see any activity that occurred during that time. These devices were the Chinese officials would spot them in your bags when you were going through security? You can't buy them in China, so we would have to bring them in from Hong Kong or other places that we were flying in from. They would see them in your bag. You could you could expect a day <laughs> in detention at the airport, explaining why <laughs> you had <have> this, <laughs> why you have this other equipment. Um, what would you say? <laughs> uh, I I was usually. Um, I, I had a whole bunch of different stories. Um, they They would spot things like um, we would bring in these specialized um, screwdrivers that take off components of the of the computer. and I used to say I made jewelry. <laughs> that was how I, I made jewelry oh. <laughs> you can get away with that as a female <laughs>
0: so
1: I would I would explain away my my screwdrivers um, with that sense um, the right blockers I you had a harder time explaining and I usually just acted as I had no information I was just a, a, a secretary asked to do a task I have no idea what it's about um, playing dumb <laughs> Um, but you, the more I lived there and more I operated in the space, it became harder to do that. So you can kind of get away with it once or twice.
2: Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask. Did, did, they must have gotten onto you at some point. Did, did you ever feel like yeah. you were being followed or surveilled or anything like that?
1: I think our communications were definitely surveilled the whole time we were we were living there. Um, I lived there for for many years. so i I do think the whole time that we were operating in the country, mm. um we were and I think that's normal for um, Westerners doing any kind of business in China anyways. um but more so for anybody dealing dealing in this space.
0: Wow.
2: So had um, by the end of your time in China, your first um, stay there. Had crypto sort of come about yet or were, were payments starting to move uh, to cryptocurrencies or was it still just kind of digital money moving on we, we pay or whatever we chat?
1: Yeah not yet. So my first time there was 2011 to 2014 okay. and I I from then I moved to Africa and I was largely working in the Middle East and northern Africa when I moved back the second time, in 2018 is when cryptocurrency started to emerge we saw cyber threats emerge like north korea and other nation states threats that started to become very prolific in in cryptocurrency
2: so what made you want to go from china to um northern africa is that or
1: yeah we actually lived we got to live in in south africa which is an amazing place i got to live in in cape town for for those years and absolutely loved it. But all the work that I was doing was in Northern Africa and the Middle East. Um, I, I went there originally on, a, on an assignment uh, working on uh, a corruption investigation. And during that time, there were, there, it started to be some, some significant cyber events as well. The, the Maersk cyber event was was very big and happened at that time as well as Saudi Aramco. <clears throat> um,
2: to just so, uh, tell somebody who doesn't know what's the Maersk event. What yeah,
1: happened? yeah. So um, Maersk was a that's was the biggest
2: the, shipping line in the
0: world, right?
1: Biggest shipping line in the world. <clears throat> they were attacked by one of the first ransomware, um, you know, major ransomware. Packs and their their network was, was encrypted, fully encrypted. And there were, I think a third of the world world's goods were out on some ship with no no idea where they were, where um, what was on those ships, you know, where those ships were going. Um, and if you just think of the scale of Maersk to think of their entire network encrypted. Is, is pretty astounding. There were mile long lines outside different ports like the port of LA and in, in New York, New Jersey, um, because they just couldn't accept goods. They couldn't um, unload goods because they just didn't have any system to be able to do that. So it was a huge, huge cyber attack. So did the ransomware
2: um, folks like get inside the and then encrypt their system entirely and then say, you gotta pay us uh, for us to unencrypt your, your data?
1: Exactly, yeah, exactly what happened. And um, it got in through a, uh, an accounting software um, similar to, to TurboTax in the U.S., um, but it was a, a small accounting software that um, somebody downloaded onto their machine and it infiltrated the, the whole network. They, they were down for, for quite a while and then they realized that one of the ports in Ghana, in Accra, Ghana the the port itself had been experiencing a power failure during the time of the ransomware attack. So they were actually offline and were still offline and they were um, that was the only server that wasn't encrypted and it had the the keys that were able to rebuild the network. Oh,
0: wow. And
1: um, that was crucial. but then it was this um, this sort of crazy race of trying to get, the Ghanaians to fly this um, this hard drive up to to Europe, and they didn't have a visa because you need a visa as most African countries to fly into Europe, and that couldn't occur. So then it was somebody from Europe flying down to Ghana to fly it back up. Um, but stay, it's not quite stay, the same. Stay as in the, yeah,
2: wow, that's such a great story. Um, it's not quite the same as don't click on a link in an email, but also maybe just don't download random software.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of these, some of this malware will hide in, you know, in upgrades to, to software packages and things like that. And they'll sit dormant for a, a, a while. And that's what happened with this, this Marisk attack is it was, it was accounting software that was personal use accounting software that was downloaded um, it was a, an upgrade package to that software that contained the malware.
2: That's so great, and, and because that one server in Ghana was offline, they were able to basically tell the malware, the ransomware people, to go f yourself.
1: Yeah, they were able to rebuild the network off yeah, of that, that that server. Cool. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: So what? Um, so when you're in Africa and you're in doing corruption investigations, it, I'm assuming you're not going in overnight like you you were in China. Was it a, like a different? Tell us about that and what what the investigations were like there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, we we did a lot of. Um, again, on-site investigations, but a lot of the kind of illegal money that was flowing to governments in Africa was being hidden in um, in things like water and petrol, um, basically resources that are you can't go into a supply warehouse and count. <laughs> um, so you you would look at something like a large um, mining operation or a large oil and gas operation that is allegedly providing huge amounts of money in bribes to the governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are often you know unfriendly governments that aren't aren't exactly doing doing good things for their citizens. And um, they would they would hide you know billions of dollars in consumable assets because it's really difficult to to go in and say well they spent a hundred million dollars on bottles of water yeah. <laughs> there are no bottles of water but they could have drank them all um, you know they have thousands of people in this in this mine so it's it's conceivable that um, that they would have you know, consumed all of these resources, and similarly with petrol, um, you would see hundreds of of Toyota Helixes <laughs> at these sites as well. Um, so it was less technical in the way that they would make these payments. You know, much less digital and and more consumable assets. You know, large assets that they could they could transfer.
2: Yeah. Um, what was it like? in Africa with the, the financial system and the banking system and, and like it, it, it's for people in the West, it's, it, it, it's kind of, you might not, know, you might know this or you might not, but pretty much everyone in Africa has a cell phone, but very few people have a like, like the bank account, like banking system is almost kind of non-existent. Is that what you found at the time?
1: That's, that's very true. It's um, South Africa is, is the more, you know, technical, Technically capable country. And even there, it's not very well connected to the the way that the rest of the global banking world works. Uh, I actually had my, my daughter when we were living in South Africa in 2017. And we had a nanny at the time who was from Zimbabwe, and she would get paid in cash at the end of each. At the end of each week and every few weeks, she would want to send money back to her family in Zimbabwe and she would pay a taxi driver and basically a taxi driver to drive a, you know, a bag of cash back to her family. She had children in Zimbabwe and she had a mother and other family members there. And that was how she was able to securely send money. And it was really the only way that she was able to securely send money.
0: Wow. That's
2: crazy. It's like remittance yeah. payment by taxi cab yeah
1: yeah and it was it was less expensive than say Western Union and some of the other places where you can send send cash and she didn't have a bank account or any other way of doing it
2: and were you there when M-Pesa started to spread and and Safaricom was sort of the network and maybe you could tell people about that and like how that kind of changed that situation with the cash
1: yeah, absolutely. So M-Pesa is an incredibly innovative digital payment system. It came about in um, around that same time and is predominantly in Kenya. And it was a bit of an experiment when it started out with um, with Safaricom. It's the Kenyan telecom system. Almost every mobile phone in in Kenya is on Safaricom, and um, it was was really revolutionary because it was it allowed people to send money directly from from phone to phone but also you could go to any street corner and put cash into the system or take cash out really through a person sitting at a table who had a mobile phone Mm -hmm. you could bring them cash they would put it into your account and then the person on the other end could take out that that money and um there were a couple things that I think were really interesting about it is it wasn't through smartphones so while most of most people do have access to a cell phone. They don't have an iPhone <laughs> they don't have a Samsung. Yeah. They still have, you know, a, a, it's called a feature phone. So it still has a keyboard. Yeah. It doesn't have any apps that we have. Um, so you have to be able to do this kind of digital payment transfer through, through actually clicking on keyboard buttons, not through a smartphone app. And M-PESA allows you to do that. You basically press, you know, star one, one, one pound, and it brings up a couple of options, which you click through with your your arrows and you click to send in the amount. Um, And that's the way that the Kenyan economy is largely running right now. I think the last number I I heard is over half of um, the, you know, payments made um, in Kenya are in M-PESA. And... I did a lot of work there, and people that I worked with that were getting paid, you know, the equivalent of you know, fairly senior-level person salary in the U.S., they were choosing to be paid into their MPESA account. So they were electing to have their entire salary paid into their MPESA account as opposed to their their you know commercial banking account.
2: Wow! So it's not just small payments; it's it's it could be relatively large what we consider sort of salary in the United States.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's getting, you know, a hundred thousand dollar equivalent salary getting paid into your m Pesa account. So I think the misconception is that these types of systems are just for, you know, somebody to send a few dollars back to their family who might live in a rural community that doesn't have access to the banking systems. But this one for me was really, really kind of mind changing and career changing because um, it illuminated that it's not just, you know, my nanny's trying to send money back to her family in, um, in Zimbabwe and has no other banking capabilities. It's for people who do have access to many other banking options, like some of the people I worked with in Kenya, but are choosing this form because it's, it's easier for them. It's you know a, a truly innovative way to, yeah. to transact. That's <clears throat> that, kind of where we get to in in cryptocurrencies. Right. That was that
2: the bridge for you into crypto. It,
1: it was. Yeah, it was a bridge for me into crypto. At that same time, it was you know right around 2018. Um, I heard a, a podcast by Chainalysis um, co-founder Jonathan Levin, mm-hmm. who was speaking on Planet Money about um, our. Yeah, about chain analysis and you know, hearing hearing about chain analysis at that time and what chain analysis was doing and making cryptocurrency safe and you know building trust in that innovation was um, yeah it was just kind of a, a turning point for me in in terms of cryptocurrency because it was largely what I was seeing attempting to happen across Africa with solutions like M-Pesa where there was um, a big emphasis to build trust into these these systems so that they can be more widely used.
2: Yeah. But then from Africa, you went back to China again for a couple of years.
1: I did, yeah. I moved back to Hong Kong, um, which is sort of the the gateway to China. Um, And it's still referred to as one country, two systems, where it is all China, but they do operate under two different systems, political and financial and um, Hong Kong is the—I kind of describe it in terms of the financial component. It's the the Lego connector piece where Chinese banking systems and laws are vastly different to those of the Western world. They don't have the same um, regulations around um, you know, around various uh, corruption and fraud and things that we are required to monitor for. And so, because of that, it can't directly transact with the Western banking world, but Hong Kong does have those in place. Yeah. And um, it, it operates as that mechanism for Chinese banks to connect directly with Western banks.
2: And how had things changed once you got back to Hong Kong and in China with, I guess, cryptocurrency, like you said before, was now more widespread and, and it kind of changed the, the flavor of, of what was going on.
1: Yeah, and Hong Kong was in a, a flux as it was politically at that time and still is now you know there were there were a lot of there was the umbrella revolution I don't know if you remember that but it was the changing of the hong kong education system to the chinese education system from the british and things like that were were occurring and so hong kong was uh in flux as it was in in terms of a political situation there were protests all leading straight up to the COVID, um, COVID pandemic, where um, there was, there were fighting against the extradition law, where if you violated a Chinese law, but we're living in Hong Kong, you could be extradited um, to China for that. And those are things like freedom of speech, um, you know, pretty important laws that in China, in Hong Kong, you're able to, to speak in certain ways in China, you can't. So it was, it's a just a huge turning point for the country as a whole, and then on top of that, we have cryptocurrency. We have um, the you know kind of nation-state threats like North Korea and and others that are have switched their M.O.s to to dealing in cryptocurrency and laundering in cryptocurrency, and you have cryptocurrency just um, kind of sitting at the this whole turning point in Hong yeah. Kong, China.
2: So. Help us understand, like, how does a country like North Korea, <clears throat> as a nation state, go about um, using cryptocurrencies? Or, um, you know, <clears throat> is it ransomware? Is it, you know, are they are they stealing from cryptocurrency um, businesses or exchanges? Or what, how are they involved? And, and what it, the interesting thing to me is, is here you've got a country that's basically protecting um, and enabling this activity, whereas you know, obviously, that's usually not the case.
1: Yeah, exactly. So North Korea has, uh, they sort of entered the main stage in terms of cybercrime <laughs> um, with a couple of major hacks that they were involved in that are, you know, had wide ranging effects. So they, there was, were responsible for the the WannaCry hack, um, which was a ransomware incident. That um, it took down a lot of of businesses. I think the the um, national health system in the UK was was most prominently affected. Although it was a nation or a, a global um, global attack, they were also responsible for the hack on Sony Pictures uh, as well as Bank of Bangladesh. So at that time, they were becoming more prominent in in cyber crime, but they didn't really seem to have a specific MO. You know, WannaCry was ransomware, but they didn't really get paid all that much from it um, because the counter cyber intelligence people were able to uncover what was happening and stop it from happening. Sony Pictures had a very political Attempt because of of a particular movie that came out that that displayed their leadership in a way they didn't want it to be displayed. And then Bank of Bangladesh was a a true sort of theft of money, of fiat currency. And it wasn't successful because ultimately the the laundering of the funds were stopped because there was um, a misspelling in the SWIFT transaction. So the money that was going to make it one more hop to them was, was stopped. And it was because there was a misspelling in the SWIFT tran- transaction and um, it was returned to Bank of Bangladesh. So.
2: Yeah. The traditional financial system comes to the rescue.
1: <laughs> it did. It did in that case. And so um, they, I love how these
2: little mistakes are so pivotal in these different stories, you know, like yeah. out of Jingana a misspelled SWIFT transaction. It's just, you can't make that stuff up. It's so great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it uh, yeah, it comes down to, to little, little errors in these, yeah. in this you get of the sense of that,
2: that um, the, the North Korean hacking is homegrown, or are they kind of recruiting people and bringing them in from around the world? Or is there anything known about that side of it?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of research done around the the actual cyber criminals of North Korea, and many of them are living outside of North Korea. They are sanctioned to be there. They're allowed to be there by their government, um, and they're actually encouraged to be there by their government. They send they send money back to the their government, and they live in places like Thailand and Singapore and Hong Kong and. Philippines and largely sitting in in other countries around Asia and they operate as you know government supported hackers and they they leverage a lot of the cyber crime techniques that are are just they've been in existing for a long time you know the earlier in this um this um, our interview, we, t- I talked about, you know, don't click on a link in an email there. That's exactly how they're getting in They're mm-hmm. They're using phishing attacks. They are leveraging social engineering. So they're building relationships with people at, at banks and at, um, crypto exchanges and places like that and leveraging that access and they're doing that by being physically located in these in these places and it's easier to do that if you are physically located in japan or philippines than if you're if you're sitting in north korea yeah. Um, yeah. but I mean, north korea does also, have a yeah. yeah exactly i mean north korea has a strong um has its arms strongly around what's happening so they are um they're strongly encouraging this activity and it's supporting the north korean economy
2: and I think, yeah, did you guys at Chainalysis say that North Korea, through all these different various means, got something like $400 million last year?
1: Yeah, $400 million just last year. So yeah. they've been, um, you know, it's been large, large amounts of money that have been stolen year over year. And it's allowing and is that, them Is it mostly to- crypto,
2: or are they also stealing fiat as well?
1: mostly crypto. Yeah, so they they've become pretty successful in stealing crypto from these these crypto exchanges and these crypto trading platforms. And do they
2: tend to go for the big ones like Bitcoin and Ether that are more liquid or is it they'll just take anything they can get?
1: They take anything they can get. So we've actually seen a trend where they are they're stealing a what a much wider range. Um, earlier, they would go after. In years past, they would go after some of the more, more liquid ones and the more stable ones, like Bitcoin and Ether. But now we see they they log into the the hot wallet of an exchange, for example, and they steal any number of ERC20 tokens. Um, they ultimately aim to convert them to Bitcoin and Ether because they're more stable in those those um, locations. But they they will steal anything that they can.
2: Yeah. So we're now getting pretty much up to where you come to Chainalysis. Um, how did that come about? And, and tell us a little bit about, you know, it, it, to the extent you can, what, what are some of your the, the more interesting investigations or projects that you've worked on since being at Chainalysis?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I joined Chainalysis in, in 2020 um, to really help to build out and head up the investigations team here. I was living in Hong Kong at the time still that I I started speaking with Chainalysis about coming over and um, there had just been a successful Department of Justice action against North Korea. And that sort of prompted me to get in touch with Chainalysis um, because they were were involved in that action. Um, And it was great to see some success against North Korea finally (laughs) in the crypto space. And I, I joined Chainalysis. We were a pretty small team of investigators. We're now uh, about forty-five people. Um, we are based around the world, and um, we're tackling cyber threats ranging from nation states to um, darknet markets to counterterrorism to, to all of the places that we we try to root out the illicit activity happening in crypto.
2: Yeah, um, we were talking earlier, and you'd mentioned this this cool project that. I think Google had helped or had hired you guys to to check or to investigate where um, basically the Bitcoin blockchain was being used. Uh, it, can, you, can you kind of walk us through that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the about four months ago, back in October of last year, Google was, was attempting to disrupt a botnet called GloopTaba which is a Russian operated um, very large botnet. And this one is different in that it leverages the, the blockchain to send instructions. So um, it's different from what we've seen in, in a lot of cyber crime. And it actually poses something that's pretty dangerous because um, it's leveraging you know, innovations and blockchain to be able to, to stay alive essentially. So the way that this botnet operates is there, there's, with botnets, there's and ransomware and any malware. Um, it's all tied to what's called the command and control server. And that command and control server is what is responsible for sending instructions to the malware. Okay. It's the same, whether it's ransomware or botnet or any kind of malware. Basically, and like the engine,
2: right? The engine that is. that is propelling all of this bad stuff.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's the command center for, for all of this cyber, um, all all these cyber attacks. And these these servers sit on domains, so you know it's suchandsuch.com. And um uh the way that in the past we've been able to take down some of this malware is to go after the command and control server itself. So if you can take down that domain name. The malware will lose connection to that to that command center, and it can no longer operate. Yeah, it's been and, centered,
2: right, from the yes. engine. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And Glupteba is has built in a, a fail safe that at this time there there is no way to completely take it offline because it is sending updated command and control information to the malware itself via the blockchain. So it's, a, it's very technical in the way that it's operating, but it's essentially um, sending, instruct, uh, sending transactions between a couple of hard-coded Bitcoin transactions that sit within the malware. And then in a Bitcoin transaction, there is a field called op-return. It's a, basically like a memo field. And within that op-return field, it's, it's encrypting a new command and control domain. And anytime the malware loses connection to its command and control server, for whatever reason, could be that it was taken offline, it, you'll see a transaction occur on the blockchain, you'll see an updated <coughs> domain entered into that op field, and then the malware will update to that domain name and it's back online.
2: Wow, so the, the bad server gets cut then it sends a transaction on the bitcoin blockchain that has a new it has instructions for the new server to then get up and running and then it's back and and is exactly. it is it just moving some bitcoin around on the on the network and that's all it takes
1: That's all it takes yeah and it it doesn't actually send all that much so it doesn't it doesn't need a significant transaction for for that to it just needs
2: occur. the code to be
1: it just needs the transaction to be sent. And because the blockchain is publicly available, the malware actually actually scans the entire blockchain. So it has instructions within the malware that says, if you lose connection to the command and control server, scan the entire blockchain, look for transactions with these, these three Bitcoin addresses. And then it looks for that transaction. It reads the op return, which is encrypted. It decrypts the message in that op return field and it updates the command um, and control server and it's
2: back online. Wow. So whereas before there was never really a permanent network that was publicly available, and now there is with like the Bitcoin blockchain. So that, that's the, that's the new innovation here that allows this sort of like um, it just can cycle the malware can cycle and cycle and cycle and never kind of be um, killed like it was in the past.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's, introducing uh, a dangerous use of the blockchain really and yeah. it could be leveraged in in other types of cyber crime you know ransomware as being a national security threat uh, ransomware operating in this way is is very dangerous it well, I a, a not that like
2: yeah not that the Bitcoin mining community or any mining community is is monolithic but is there anything that the like a miner could do um, when they are, you know, could they be checking for this sort of inclusion when they're mining transactions in, in a block or something, so that this doesn't get through?
1: It's probably going to get through before before that could occur, yeah. um, and it's still going to be sitting out there for it. So it sits in. Um, it, they actually set the rewards quite low so that it sits in the mempool and has a very long time to be read um before it's picked up so it's um it's sitting out there for quite some time and um it's read it's read very quickly
0: yeah
2: and and at this point there's really nothing that can be done about this
1: at this point there's nothing that can be done about this because the blockchain is decentralized there's not an overarching authority that can say these transactions can't be sent from these addresses and it's actually the outgoing transaction that sends the op return. So um, the idea of is flooding that address with, with transactions with you know, a lot of different messages might confuse it. It's the outgoing transaction and the only person that has the ability to send an outgoing transaction from that address is the person in control of the wallet.
2: Right, and they are able to un- unencrypt what's encrypted in there in the, in the memo field basically.
1: Yeah, they can put whatever they want in that memo field.
2: <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Um, so the, it's, it's really interesting to me as well. Um, the, the tools that you guys have are just getting better and better. And um, like you're now able to, you know, just in the recent past, uh, if if somebody wanted to try to hide cryptocurrency transactions, they go through something called a mixer where, you know, it some coins would get mixed with a whole bunch of other different coins and then they get split and sent into different directions um, kind of fractionally. And that sort of like used to stop people dead in their tracks because it was really difficult to figure that out or reverse engineer it. But it now seems like that's, it, it is possible to figure that out. Um, and I'm just curious, like <clears throat> how is that possible now? Like what is, what is it about like your technology that's increasing uh, and, and getting so much better? Uh, And is it, is it a case where on the other side, like, let's just say the bad guys, are they, you know, getting more and more sophisticated and you guys are getting more and more sophisticated and it's kind of this, you know, um, this, this increasing battle between you guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both. So I joined Chainalysis because I really want to root out the illicit actors on the blockchain and Chainalysis has the, the best Investigators, the best R&D team, the best um, product and data team in the world, by by far is my true belief. Um, you know, starting with our founder uh, Jonathan Levin. I mean, he is the original blockchain investigator, and through all of that, just comes expertise that you can't um, you can't just you know replicate overnight. And part of that is the the building of um, of tools that. Um, you know, rely on data that takes years to build. And um, those tools were able to stay ahead of the bad guys. You know, the bad guys are, are leveraging, um, uh, leveraging obfuscation techniques like mixers you mentioned, swapping services, different types of coins, you know, a lot of different techniques. And our ability to stay ahead of them and build tools that allows us to, to follow the money through that obfuscation is is extremely valuable. And um, I think that's, you know, that's why, that's why I joined J-Analysis is, we don't see a ransomware incident where there's not mixers involved. Um, And the harder to tackle um, Cybercrime and the harder to tackle crypto crime these days is is much more innovative by the illicit actors. They're using any any means they can to obfuscate their trail, and um, that's both in the funding of the addresses that they control, um, which is, we saw in Gloop You know, Gloop wasn't a money laundering um, money laundering incident, but by looking at the way that they're funding those transactions. Um, those wallets that are making those transactions, that's a thats a key piece of evidence to who's, who's in control of that wallet that's sending that transaction. Um, and those bad actors are always going to be using the most innovative ways to obfuscate their identity. So it's really important for us as investigators and as an investigation company to be able to provide those tools.
2: Yeah. And I'm just curious, is it... Um... Is it like new partnerships that you guys are forging, you know, with maybe an exchange in a part of the world that you didn't, you know, have a relationship with and you weren't, maybe you weren't sharing, they weren't sharing data with you or, or something like that, that is allowing you to get more sophisticated and, and better like um, granularity here, or is it also the actual technology and, and what you're able to do on the forensic side that's, that's improving?
1: So it's largely the data. So, none of this runs without the, the blockchain data itself. And um, the chain analysis um, participation in various blockchain networks um, has built a, a vast amount of data that just can't be replicated. So, um, that allows us to build tools that can, um, can look through this data and analyze it in a certain way. That we're able to to break down these obfuscation attempts, and um, that so it really comes down to the power of the data. We do build. Substantial partnerships with crypto exchanges, um, financial institutions involved in crypto, all of that, you know, we, we do alongside law enforcement where there's legal process involved. Um, and that that community coming together as a whole to tackle cybercrime is also a, a massive way that we're able to all work together to, yeah. to tackle this threat.
2: So because because all these blockchains we're talking about whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana they're all public you got you can basically access them and run nodes or and then have that data at your disposal to, to help build the tools that you're talking about
1: Exactly exactly and the the bulk of that data and bringing in you know substantial amounts of data plus the historical data that we've we've collected is what allows us to build these tools Um, We have an incredible R&D team, research and development team that is is always throwing us New and innovative tools um, that blow my investigators' minds.
0: <laughs> um, that must be really nice.
1: <laughs> it is nice, and yeah. part of that comes down to their their just deep expertise in this space. It's it not
0: like
2: uh, in James Bond when he goes in and they show him all the new weapons that he's going to take with him. You know,
1: <laughs> that is exactly what this person. I won't I won't mention him by name because I'm not sure he wants to be mentioned by name, but. There, there's a team of, of people that, that work for him and that is very much the, <laughs> yeah. um, the James James Bond um yeah and, tool and developer.
2: I love, I love this too, that it's a function of the openness of these networks and the you know the open source and the fact that this is all public. And it's something that I wish more people understood about blockchain because and crypto in general, they think it's all anonymous and hidden and you know, people are doing this in the shadows and I guess there's some of that, but honestly, like you're saying, everything's out there in the open. And if you know how to look for it, and if you know how to follow the clues, you can, you know, it's very hard to get away with stuff uh, in this, in this world.
1: Exactly. And I mean, I've been, I've been working in cybercrime and financial crime investigations for, for almost 20 years, going back to, you know, looking at actual receipts of swift transactions and things like that. And the, the speed in which we've been able to evolve in with tools that can combat this and cryptocurrency is so much faster than we've been able to evolve over, you know, decades of trying to tra- tackle fiat crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is largely because of the the global decentralized nature of blockchain and the ability to see anything real time um, on the blockchain and um, all work together in tackling that. I think the other thing that's really incredible about the cryptocurrency community is that we all come together in in times of of greater threat you know we look at what's happening now in ukraine and just the the community effort you know chainalysis is working side by side with our competitors who work side by side with all of, everybody in the crypto space to to do everything we can mm-hmm. and i think that's really unusual as well and part of that is just the nature of Innovative tech and you know innovative financial, um, you know financial tools that are out there to to come together in that way rather than um, you know keeping things just to themselves.
0: Yeah,
2: that's that's like the founding ethos almost of crypto in general that I I love and I I do agree with you that it's it's rare to see that in other industries where it's mostly siloed and you know people are very intent on keeping their secrets there to themselves and, and this is kind of the opposite of that which is is very powerful to see
1: it is it is and you see it in in hacking you know stolen funds incidents all the time well we'll get contacted by a crypto company who's had an incident where money's been stolen from them through some kind of hack by the time they've gotten in touch with us through you know whatever way they know We've we already we've already investigated it because we we've seen on Reddit or on Twitter that the events have occurred and of course we're gonna jump in and investigate. We don't care that someone's you know paying us or not. Where we're very um, you know we're just very passionate Uh, about stuff. Tell me about it.
2: Being a reporter in this space has been so weird because it's like it's almost impossible to get a scoop because people just put stuff out you know immediately. (laughs) On Twitter and like, or wherever, like you said, Reddit, it doesn't matter. It just goes out and then you're reacting to it rather than, you know, it's a, it's, you know, reporters love to get scoops. They love to tell people things they don't know. And, and in crypto, people are just like, no, I'm going to tell everybody right now.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> and reporters are left yeah. scrambling to put a story together. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's very, it's very unique. And it's also just very, you know, it, it makes I mean, many of us very feel very positive about the future of yeah, this technology.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a great place to leave this, Erin. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Really, really enjoyed this. And um, I think, you know, thank you for what you've done over all these years. And uh, may uh, you long continue and, and good luck at Chainalysis.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for being interested in what we do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we'll talk again soon.
0: Definitely. Have a good day. Me too.